Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, July 16th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the cooperation in the education sector between the United Republic of Tanzania and the People's Republic of China. The Angolan Central Bank is addressing the rising rates of inflation inside that southern African state. The United Nations Development Program uh, is cooperating with African states on developing uh, programs for peaceful transitions. And uh, the African Union is developing new approaches to public education across the continent. In the second hour, we cover the recent statement uh, by Republic of Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnangagwa uh, warning the imperialist states to refrain from interference in the upcoming national elections in Zimbabwe. We then listened to a rare archival audio file featuring Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes discussing the situation involving African-American writers in the United States during the 1960s. We then hear from African National Congress National Executive Committee uh, reporting on the upcoming BRICS Summit uh, to be held in the Republic of South Africa, along uh, with the NEC's assessment of the state of local government inside South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
she's hip. Heavy, heavy, heavy.
Fellows and friends, every not good.
Listen up. Now, the whole thing.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, July the 16th. 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we just heard the music of uh, Afro Rock uh, from the uh, album uh, Volume One of uh, Afro Rock Volume One, and uh, it uh, contains a collection of uh, songs uh, by numerous bands uh, from uh, various parts of uh, the African continent, uh, Geraldo Pino, uh, Jingo, Steel, Buata, uh, Mercury Dance Band, uh, Dakin, Dakino, and uh, many others, uh, such as uh, Kay Frimpong of um, Ghana, and uh, several other groups, uh, Kay Frimpong and his Cubano Fiestas, Orchestra Lisanga. Uh, Super Mambo 69, uh, Yahoo's uh, Bukor Band, and Inkansa and Yanomas. And uh, those bands are from uh, Ghana and uh, other parts uh, of the African continent. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswatch segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, at the uh, end... Uh, of uh, this uh, program, we're going to give you information on how uh, you can log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the situation in the United Republic of Tanzania uh, and its collaboration with uh, the People's Republic of China in the field of education. Tanzania stands to benefit from technical and vocational education and training, the TVET, collaboration with the People's Republic of China in enabling the East African nation's TVET graduates to meet both local and international standards. A senior official has said the Minister of Education, Science and Technology, Adolf Mkenda, said sharing experiences with China was expected to have a positive impact on the transformation and development of TVET systems in Tanzania. Kende made the remarks on Friday when he opened a one-day Africa-China TVET collaboration and academic exchange seminar jointly organized by the National Council for Technical and Vocational Education and Training, China-Africa Vocational Education Alliance, and Sunmaker Training Institute, at the Malimu Julius Nereri Leadership School in Kibaha District in the Coast Region. TVET collaboration with China will not only improve the quality of TVET, its provisions, but will also produce competent human resources and attract foreign investors, including Chinese investment in Tanzania, uh, said uh, the minister. 
And in other news, uh, in Angola, the Monetary Policy Committee with the National Bank of Angola, the country's central bank, announced on Friday in a statement that it had revised the inflation rate forecast to the range of 12 to 14 percent upwards, quote, essentially due to the recent depreciation of the national currency, unquote. In the statement issued on the website of the BNA, the Monetary Policy Committee mentioned that at the end of June, Angola's International Reserve stood at 13.68 billion U.S. dollars, representing a 6.01 month of import cover of goods and services. The Monetary Policy Committee decided to maintain the central bank's benchmark rate at 17%. Quote, the decision is based on the resurgence of inflationary pressures due to changes in the macroeconomic framework, particularly the reduction in export revenues and the consequent currency devaluation. Additionally, expectations surrounding the education of gasoline price, reduction of gasoline price subsidies, and constraints resulting from the reorganization of street vending also impacted prices, unquote, read the statement. In the monetary field, Angola's Monetary 2 aggregate and the national currency contracted 2.36% last month, reducing the accumulated variation since the beginning of the year to 3.17% and the year-on-year variation to 6.57%, according uh, to the statement. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the African Union has outlined its educational program for 2024 amid a biting shortage of 17 million teachers across the continent. Mohamed Belhassin, the AU Commissioner for Education, Science, Technology, and Innovation, said that despite the global crisis facing the world, the continental body would dedicate itself in 2024 to seeking solutions to education poverty in Africa. Quote, the teaching profession is not given more attention. People are no longer choosing the teaching profession because it is perceived as losing the prestige it previously enjoyed. This has become a global problem, unquote. Bel Hussein said in a briefing in Nairobi, the Kenyan capital, on Friday evening. The African Union is currently holding its executive council, which comprises foreign ministers and their counterparts in charge of various dockets under discussion at a mid-year coordination summit set for 15-16 of July in Nairobi, uh, the capital of Kenya. The AU official said that the global community to relegate the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the debt crisis, and the global financial crisis in favor of education. The UN held its summit on transforming education, a parallel summit that took place on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in 2022 to discuss transforming education on uh, the African continent. And uh, finally, an initiative aimed at promoting peaceful transfers of power in Africa, avert coups and turmoil, was launched yesterday by the African Union and the United Nations Development Program in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. The initiative dubbed Africa Facility to Support Inclusive Transitions, which was launched ahead of AU Heads of State Summit in Nairobi, slated for Sunday, seeks to entrench peaceful political transition and a prerequisite for the continent's long-term stability. Nkoli Arioye, 
Commissioner for Political Affairs and Peace and Security at the AU Commission said strengthening institutions, inclusive dialogue, and enlarging civic space to deter unconstitutional change of governments in Africa is a key component of the new AU and United Nations Development Program joint initiative. Hadi Oye said the initiative was launched in response to the call by the African leaders during their meeting in May in Malabo, the capital of Equatorial Guinea, where they reiterated their commitment to fostering democratic rule. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Press Agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, July 16th, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Oh! 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was uh, the music of uh, Alice Clark uh, with the track entitled Keep It Hid. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to uh, this program so you can listen to it again, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, you can reach the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. In the Southern African state of Zimbabwe, uh, the government is preparing uh, for national elections uh, to elect a new president as well as a new parliament. The ruling uh, Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front Party has maintained uh, control in Zimbabwe uh, since uh, its independence in April of 1980, some 43 years. Uh, The elections coming up, uh, of course, uh, are always uh, a center for intrigue uh, by foreign uh, nations, particularly imperialist countries. And uh, President Emerson Mnangagwa uh, issued a warning uh, just recently warning the West to stay away uh, from meddling in the internal elections and politics of the Republic of Zimbabwe. Let's listen to this report. This is the heavily contested elections post the Robert Mugabe era. The governing party's NPF presidential candidate is under immense pressure. President Emerson Nangagwa has used his campaign trail to send a stand warning ahead of the elections. We will not, we will not, as the people of Zimbabwe, we will not allow the Western countries to dictate to us. We don't dictate to them. This interference from outside is unacceptable. We as a sovereign state and a member of the United Nations, we have a sovereign right to run our elections uninterfered. Those countries who want to observe must restrict themselves to the role of observing our elections, not to interfere in that process, who will not accept it. 
After all, after all, they have elections full of fault in their own places. Many Zimbabweans have left the country due to economic and unpredictable political environment. The earlier they remove these sanctions, the earlier they will be comfortable in their own consciences. Because against these sanctions will continue to grow. Our economy for the past three years has been growing above 5% and leading growing economy in the region in spite of nefarious sanctions imposed on our economy and our country. All eyes will be on Zimbabwe next month as it decides on who will lead the country in the next five years. Kylie Sekumalo, SABC News. And that was a report from the South African Broadcasting Corporation in regard to the upcoming elections in the Republic of Zimbabwe. And, of course, the warning on the part of the Zimbabwean president, Emerson Mnangagwa, who is also a chairperson of the ZANU-PF party, the leader of the party and the state, warning to the imperialist countries not to interfere in the elections coming up uh, very soon in uh, Zimbabwe. And in the United States, uh, there has been a strike uh, on the part of the Writers Guild of America. Uh, it's been going on now for a month and a half, involving 11,000 uh, people who are covered under the WGA. Uh, just this last past Friday, the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Announcers joined uh, the WGA in a strike as well, um, taking 171,000 people uh, on strike uh, within the entertainment industry. And, of course, um, the struggle of writers and artists in the United States is not a new one. African Americans in particular understand uh, these historical struggles. We're going to listen to a rare archival radio interview from 1961 uh, featuring some of the most prominent and well-known African American writers during that period, uh, James Baldwin, uh, essayist, novelist, public intellectual, Lorraine Hasbury, uh, playwright, public intellectual, activist. Uh, this uh, interview was done uh, in uh, 1961 uh, on the radio in New York. It also includes uh, the presence of the legendary Langston Hughes. Let's listen. To begin the subject, which sounds rather alarmingly vague, the Negro in American culture, I'd like to start with uh, the end of a book review that James Baldwin wrote for the New York Times a couple of years ago. Uh, the review was on poems of Langston Hughes. And you concluded by saying he is not the first American Negro to find the war between his social and artistic responsibilities all but irreconcilable. To what extent do you find this true in your own writing? Uh, in terms of the self-consciousness of being a Negro and a writer, the polarity, if there, if it exists? Well, um, the first thing, the first, the first difficulty is, is, is really um, so simple that it's usually overlooked. Um, to, be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time. 
and in one's work. And part of the rage is this. It isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, the indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. Now, since this is so, you know, it's, very, it's a great temptation to, um, to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. Mm -hmm. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be, a complex thing can't be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. To be a, to be a Negro writer, then, is to um, somehow, I don't know, we, can, we have to kick this around for, for a while, in the same way that you have to um, not knock down the elevator man and the doorman. No. At some point, you have, to, you have to decide that you can't spend the rest of your life cursing out everybody you know, who gets in your way. And some other level, as a writer, you have to decide that what is really important is not that these people are Negroes, but that these people are people. Mm -hmm. And that, if you, and that the suffering of any, of any person is really universal. And if you can ever reach this level, if you can create a person and, and make other people feel what this person feels. And it seems to me one has gone much further, um, obviously, you know, not only artistically but socially, than, 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 than the, uh, the ordinary old-fashioned protest way. And I talked about Langston's, uh, Langston not being the first poet to find these um, responsibilities all but irreconcilable. He's not and he won't be the last um, because it, it also demands a great deal of time to write. It demands a great deal of stepping out of a social, of a social, social situation in order to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And all the time you're out of it, you can't help feeling but a little, a little guilty that you are not, on the, as you were, on the firing line, or, you know, uh, out there sort of um, tearing down the slums and doing all these things, which, in fact, other people can do better than you because it is still terribly true that a writer is very rare. Is that... Yes. <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry, and, uh, you first became widely known through Raisin and the Sun, and in writing that, to what extent did you feel, uh, in a sense, a double role, both as a kind of social actionist, protester, what have you, and as a dramatist? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I feel that in connection with what Jimmy was saying, that <clears throat> A thing is probably twice true in this respect, that given the Negro writer, we are necessarily aware of a special situation in the American setting. And that probably works two ways. One of them, making us sometimes forget that uh, there, very there is really very or very limited expression literature which is not protest, be it black, white, or mm -hmm. what have you, that I can't imagine a contemporary writer any place in the world today who isn't in conflict with his world. Personally, I can't imagine a time in the world when the artist wasn't in conflict, if he was any kind of an artist. Mm -hmm. He had to be. So that it isn't really that unique. We are doubly aware of it because of the special pressures of being a Negro in America. But I think to to destroy the abstraction for the sake of the specific is, in this case, an error. So that once we come to that realization, it doesn't get quite as confusing as uh, sometimes we tend to treat it. In my piece that you mentioned, I was <coughs> dealing with a young man. I know most people think that the mother is the 
prime character that played that has to do with deficiency and dramaturgy, not, <laughs> and, not and, anything and, else. And the power of the actors, eh? <laughs> well, <laughs> they were both admirable actors, but uh, I was dealing with a young man who would have, I feel, been a compelling object of conflict as a young American of his class, of whatever racial background, that uh, with the exception of the incident at the end of the play, and mm -hmm. with the exception, of course, of character depth, because Negro character is a reality. There is no such thing as saying that a Negro could be a white person if you just change the lines or something like this. This is a very arbitrary and superficial approach to, I think, Negro character. But and taking this long way around to say mm -hmm. what you do, what you uh, to try and answer what you ask, there really is no profound problem. I started to write about this family as I knew them in the context of those realities which I remembered as being true for this particular given set of people. And at one point, it was just inevitable that a problem of some magnitude, which was racial, would intrude itself, because this is, as I said before, one of the realities of Negro life in America. But it was just as inevitable that for a large part of the play, mm -hmm. that they would be excluded, because as Demi and I have remarked to one another many times, and I'm sure that Langston has in his own, uh, the duality of consciousness is so complete that it is perfectly true to say that Negroes do not sit around 24 hours a day thinking, I am a Negro. <laughs> you know, they really don't. I don't. I don't think he does or anybody else. And at the other hand, if you say the, the reverse, that is almost true. And this is part of the complexity that I think you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, it's a part of the complexity one's got to get at and deal with. Yes. It's, this is, it's, it, is, it, is, it, isn't, it isn't just a matter... I, I agree with Lorraine completely. No, most of this... In great detail, but it's this, it's this which is interesting. You know, it's this which one has got to get at, because white white men in this country and Americans in this American Negroes in this country are really. I discovered this in Europe. Perhaps it was always very obvious, but it never occurred to me before. Are really are really the same people. You know, mm -hmm. they are um, the only people in the world who understand American white men. Are, are, are Negroes. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's profoundly true. I, I really, it I sounds really. romantic to say it aloud, but yeah, I have but a I feeling really of the course you, you, you make that point uh, several times very very trenchantly in Notes of a Native Son, as I remember, too, in yeah. some of the essays in it. Um, Langston Hughes, you have a large, continuing body of work, and uh, I wondered if you had felt, in, in the course of your own development as a writer, a change in your feeling of this duality as the conditions around you changed as the struggle for equality became more militant as you had uh, some progress and setbacks on the right and the, the status to some extent of, of the quote Negro writer unquote began to change. In other words, to what extent did the society around you change the kind of tension under which you wrote? Oh, I must say that I don't Notice any changes yet. <laughs> one, uh, one kind of problem after another comes to the mm -hmm. fore in different ways and in different sections of our country. And um, I happen to be uh, <clears throat> a writer who uh, travels a great deal because I read my poems in public quite a deal, you see. And almost every year I travel over most of the country, south and north, and uh, I do, of course, see 
appreciable changes in some um, areas of race relations, and I trust that my recent work reflects them to some extent. But by and large, it seems to me not really very different from when I was a child. The, uh, there are still a great many places where you can't get a hamburger, a cup of coffee, or you can't get a, uh, you can't sit on a bench in a railroad station or mm. something of this sort, and not just in the South. It, uh, uh, those problems exist in Washington, on the West Coast, and in Maine, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I am, of course, as, as everyone knows, primarily a, I guess you might even say a propaganda writer. My, my main material is is the race problem, and uh, I have found it most exciting and interesting and intriguing to deal with it in writing, and uh, I haven't found uh, the problem of being a Negro um, in any sense... Uh, a hindrance to putting words on paper. They, it may be a hindrance sometimes to selling them, <laughs> or the material that one uses, the fact that one uses, or that I use the problem material and the material that uh, is likely to often excite discussion or disagreement, uh, in some cases prevents its quick sale, you know? I mean, I know that, no doubt it's much easier to uh, sell a story uh, like Frank Yerby rights without the race problem in it, or uh, like, yes, or or as uh, Willard Motley, who also happens to be Negro, uh, uh, writes without accentuating the sharpness of our American race problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those writers are are much more commercial than than I, or than than Miss Hansberry, I think, even, or or James Baldwin, who uh, uh, to me seems to be one of the most racial of our writers, in spite of his uh, <laughs> analysis of himself otherwise on occasion. <laughs> Later for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emil Capuya, not necessarily speaking for Macmillan, but for what you have, what you've observed in publishing as a whole, do you think uh, Langston Hughes' point has validity that uh, the degree of sharpness in which the racial problem is, 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 um, is written about is that much of a deterrent? to sales, let's say in the book field. I, I wonder if there isn't a distinction between magazine writing and, and book writing. Here. No, I think not in that. Uh-huh. Actually, all the three previous speakers, Ms. Hansbury and Mr. Hughes and Jimmy Baldwin, had destroyed your opening gambit. You suggested mm-hmm. that uh, the tension that Jimmy alleged in his review was a real thing, and they've just told you it's not. And when they get to use discretion, they find that that tension is one that every artist has to settle within himself, and being a Negro doesn't make it any harder or any easier. Mm-hmm. From a publisher's point of view, well, publisher, is an, uh, from an editor's point of view, I should say, I don't mean to add those, that much glory to myself. From an editor's point of view, somebody who's um, professionally interested in buying and selling literary material, an artist, a writer, is two different people. First of all, he's uh, an artist, and as such, his claims are absolute. You know, nothing's too good for him. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You've got to pay him advances. And uh, he, can, he can even reflect a sort of charisma on his editor. You know, the way um, Thomas Wolfe did on that fortunate man at Scribner's. But he has another <laughs> but he has another personality, too. He's also a commodity. And as a commodity, he has no rights at all. He just has a market value only. So to come directly to your question, do I think that the questionable material that a Negro writer may find readiest to hand is questionable from the market point of view, 
I'd say that that is, must be an absolutely individual case. Mr. Hugh has suggested that uh, it's uh, been a stumbling block in his road to riches. But um, that wouldn't be the case, obviously. And Jimmy's uh, business as a novelist is largely with that material. You can, you can see me later, too, Jimmy. No, I don't, and Miss Hansbury has had a, a great success, I think, partly because of what the great public that went to see that play thought of as exotic material. Um, may, may I uh, say that from long years' experience with publishers, and many of them, I have about six now, uh, it has been my uh, feeling that if a publisher has one Negro writer on their list, or two at the most, they are not very likely to take another if the Negro writer is dealing in, in racial themes. Um, and it's not prejudice. It's simply that, uh, like they will tell you, well, we have a book, uh, a Chinese novel this year on our list. We don't want any more Chinese novels. Mm -hmm. Or we have two Negro writers, two Negro novels this year. Uh, I don't think we could, uh, could you wait another year for yours, you see? And um, the same thing is true in the theater. Uh, play after play after play by uh, Negro playwrights, or white playwrights for that matter, on Negro themes. Uh, goes around Broadway, and once in the blue moon, one of them gets taken. Once in ten blue moons, one of them is a hit, like Raisin in the Sun, you see? And the Broadway uh, producers will tell you, quite frankly, uh, uh, we don't think that's commercial. Uh, look, last year the long dream flopped, the cool world flopped. Mm -hmm. No more Negro plays. Uh, they're not commercial. We can't sell them. The people won't go to the box office. So, uh, if you want to make money out of writing, being a Negro writer, I mean quickly and easily... I would say become a Willard Motley, become a, a Frank Yerby. Back to you. <laughs> well, I don't take that as an interruption, Mr. Hughes. That's perfectly true. I, I don't think it's the whole truth uh, in relation to the way the question was originally posed by Nat. So he, um, wouldn't that be true if two plays about the Jewish East Side were to... Uh, yes, uh, yes, it, it certainly would be. I said it's not a matter really of racial prejudice. It's a matter of the kind of material oh, you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Like well, you I took it as a rebuttal, and I was You go to the grocery much. store, and you mm -hmm. want some bread. Well, you don't want cake. And mm -hmm. If you've got a loaf of bread, you're not going to buy another one that day. <laughs> oh, I don't... I, I wouldn't be so quick to exclude uh, the characterization, whether it is or isn't prejudice. I mean, there's so many different ways of saying the same thing, and it's, it would be more than wishful thinking to me to exclude prejudice as regards Negroes mm -hmm. with any... Uh, area of our fabric of life. I just don't think that's realistic. It's prejudice when you can't get an apartment. It's, I dare say it's probably prejudice when a skillful writer cannot publish because of some arbitrarily decided notion of what is or is not what they tell me all the time, parochial material, mm. highly narrow, uh, of narrow interest and so forth and so on. In a culture which has any pretensions toward uh, sophistication, and universal <coughs> interest in human beings, there should not be arbitrary uh, designations of kinds of material. A good book should find a publisher. I know this is utter mm -hmm. idealistic assertion, but this should be the reality and the fact that we who are writers come to accept this concept of, yes, well, they, they did a Chinese play last year on Broadway, so you know they won't do another for the next 40 years, is, uh, I don't think, to treat the industry fairly itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't say it's fully true, but um, I think commercially speaking, and he brought up the problem of the writer as a commodity, I think it is by and large true uh, what I have said. And I think um, that 
for the Negro writer to make a living, of course, is doubly hard due to the prejudice that Miss Hansberry has just spoken about in other areas relating to writing. For example, I, I told you that I'm a, a lecturer and I read my poems. I have been with uh, two or three of the top agencies. Uh, those agencies cannot, as a rule, book me at women's clubs. Women's clubs have teas. They do, they do not wish to mingle socially with their speaker, apparently, and they do not wish to invite their speaker's friends in whatever town he may be speaking mm-hmm. to the program because it's followed by a social event. Therefore, it's uh, a rare uh, occasion when I read my poems to a, a woman's club. On occasion, I have, but rarely. Uh, if you want a job in the publishing industry, try and get it. How many editors of color can anyone name on any of our uh, New York publishing houses? Uh, you may find an occasional uh, girl secretary at the switchboard or, or a typist or a stockroom boy, but for the writer himself to get some sort of work related to his actual writing and publishing is well nigh impossible, I think. Um, until very recently, in the last few years, Negroes did not write for Hollywood. Nothing was really sold to Hollywood. That's a sort of new development. I've been writing for 30 years. I've had one Hollywood job in 30 years, and many white writers whom I know, less famous, with fewer books, some with almost no name at all, uh, have Hollywood swimming pools and a, and a house in uh, Palm Springs as well, and, and fly to Europe all the time, and they grew up with me. Uh, uh, so you see, the prejudice operates in the fields of making money from writing. Uh, it doesn't keep a writer from writing if you're colored. No, you can write all you want to. But just try and sell it, that's all. Mr. Kazan? Well, may I go back for a moment to the point which Mr. Baldwin began with, uh, this um, alleged um, conflict between the social and the artistic in American life. You know, words like social and artistic are easy to use, and I'm sure that if I were a Negro writer um, and had to go through the daily humiliations that certain of my friends go through, I would feel this way. Let me for a moment put it upon a purely theoretical plane where... Human history is not lived, but where art sometimes can be discussed. America itself has always been a social question. All that's good in American writing, American art, comes out of the profound investigation of social themes. It comes out of the profundity of the things. It's true of Moby Dick and of Leaves of Grass. It comes out of what I consider to be the driving force behind all things, which is human hunger and human desire. Only it's a question, of course, not of how much you desire or how bad you feel, but how artistically you can realize your desire. So that the thing we have to consider for a moment is, well, two things. One is the current fashion to believe that art is somehow created apart from society uh, on the basis of purely individual will, uh, as opposed to the marvelous books published in this country between, I would say, 1911 and 1934-35, many of which, like Faulkner's and Steinbeck's, Mr. Hughes's and other such books, are based upon very real and agonizing social problems. And I must say that in the centenary year of the Civil War, it's hard to forget that the Negro, in my belief anyway, is the central issue in American history, has been the central issue all along, has been the real crux of our history and of our aspirations as a people, and that therefore the question comes up as always, how deeply, how profoundly, how accurately do you recognize this social kind of drive in our literature right now? And one thing that's happening right now in middle-class writing everywhere is what's happening to Negroes, too. People don't have as many beefs as they think they have. We often have no real beefs. 
They are very often led by what I would consider purely arbitrary problems, and consequently a good deal of the tremendous whiplash of hunger, uh, hunger in the widest sense, the deepest sense, has been forgotten here. I think, to put it very bluntly, in America there cannot be any conflict between the so-called social and artistic impulse. That one must recognize that what we call art is the most profound realization of some social tendency in our art, and that wherever you don't have the social awareness, the social intelligence, then it seems to me you don't have art either. Now, if the Negro, let's look at it another way, the Negro has been not merely a writer, he's also been a character, and he's been more or less one of the most profound characters in American literature. I don't mean Uncle Tom either. I mean the characters in Faulkner, I mean the characters in many even pre-antebellum Civil War novelists who were always aware of the Negro as a force, as a human being, as a problem, as a challenge, as a lover, as many things. And one must not forget that this problem goes to the very essence of our life as a civilization. And that's why I'm so troubled when um, the Mr. Baldwin expressed this for reasons that I can well imagine, but which I want for once to pretend that I don't understand. It opens by bringing up this whole question of the of the um, conflict between the social and the artistic. I think art is, is never created where one is too aware of this kind of conflict. And I don't also, also believe in conflicts that are realized. Once there's a conflict, I think there's the bypass and go on to a third, fourth, as such. And American life right now, I'm thinking, example, of Mr. Baldwin's Notes for Native Son, which for me, in many ways, is one of the most successful books, even though it's an essay book, of, of modern American writing. I recently put it at the head of a big anthology of temporary writing I've edited, and I, I've been struck in rereading it as I had to many times in manuscript and proof by the power and the brilliancy and the vividness of it. You know what I would say about it? Yeah. I would say it's the Uncle Tom's Cabin of today. Well, <laughs> I have to like Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think it's a masterpiece. And the reason it's a masterpiece is because the broken glass of the 43 Harlem riot, the miseries of personal family, all these things are social impulses that have been captured and realized as works of art. And the minute one tries to break away from this, tries to get away from this enormous passion, then one is lost. The other thing is that one must recognize that art itself was a word that people use, but that the ability to create it is something which is utterly God-given, accidental, capricious, you know. When I think, for example, to speak of something I know rather intimately well, when the Jewish immigrants from whom I come came to this country 50, 60 years ago, there's a whole horde of sweatshop poets, and they were miserable people. They worked 18, 19 hours a day. They lived horrible lives. None of this poetry that I've seen in English or in Yiddish or Hebrew is any good at all. Lola Ridge. Lola Ridge didn't come out of this class at all. No. And then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, in the last 15 years, we had a group of writers like Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer and Bernard Malibut and others who, with, with enormous uh, surprise to themselves, I think, suddenly created five or six really good books which are as fresh as anything can be. Now, one reason they've done this is because they've come to recognize their fate as being universal in some sense, and not merely accidental and parochial in that sense. I don't mean that they shouldn't write about parochial things, on the contrary, but they've come to recognize the universal in this. And when I ask myself, what is the difference between those lovable, dear people 60 years ago with their awful sweatshop poetry and a writer who, to my mind, is as first class as Saul Bellow in one or two short things, I can only say that's a question of the of, of the wielding together at a certain moment of, of all these impulses without for a moment forgetting that intelligence and social passion come into play here, you see. And one mustn't ever fall, it seems to me, into this problem uh, of dividing the two. Otherwise, it becomes a problem in the economic history of the writer. It becomes a problem in the social history of the writer. It does not become a problem of art, as such, which is something very different entirely. 
because otherwise, you see, uh, Mr. Frank Yerby can say very frankly, he took the easy way out, which he did, but that doesn't let him off in any way, you see. Yeah, he does have the swimming pool. pool down yeah, he has a swimming pool, all right. <laughs> he doesn't even need an editor's job in New York. <laughs> Jim, isn't this yeah. pretty much the point you Welcome back. And uh, that was a radio interview from uh, 1961 uh, featuring Elaine Hansberry, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes, three luminaries uh, within African-American uh, literary traditions. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, July 16th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
voice of Marsha Hunt uh, with the track entitled Black Flower. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, Right now we're going to move into our segment uh, on a recently held briefing by the African National Congress National Executive Committee in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, This uh, briefing discusses the upcoming Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa summit. Uh, which will take place uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa has invited all other African states to participate in this upcoming BRICS summit. Let's listen to the ANC, the ruling party of the country, listen to their analysis of uh, events uh, surrounding uh, the upcoming BRICS summit. We'll take you to this now. The ANC is currently providing a comprehensive update to the media regarding the outcomes of its ANC-NEC gathering this past weekend. And the briefing primarily centers around key concerns like persistent power shortages and the presence of an undocumented immigrants in the country. Let's take you live with the first Deputy Secretary uh, General, that's Nambulam Konyani, has started speaking. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we have had the deliberations and uh, out of the discussions of the NEC, amongst other things that we wish to share is that as the organization we've been involved in a number of activities uh, on the diplomatic front. On this front, our subcommittee on international relations hosted a number of political parties and foreign missions to forge collaborations and cooperation in various fields. These parties and civil society organizations involved the FES of Germany, Rally for Hoptists for Democracy and Peace from Ivory Coast, and Union for Democracy and Social Progress from the Democratic Republic of Congo and other foreign missions and progressive organizations across the globe. These interactive uh, processes reside on our pillar of creating a better Africa and a better world as we forge alliances, build party-to-party relationships, and intra-party relations, bilateral and multilateral relations to deepen internationalism, solidarity, peace, and friendship as advocated by the Freedom Charter and the founding principles of the African Union and the the Agenda 2063 of the African Union. When all these were happening, directed to a greater goal of building a new global order-based partnership, the global lens is focusing on South Africa as we will be hosting the historic 2023 BRICS Political Party Plus Dialogue under the theme BRICS and Africa, Partnership for Mutually Accelerated Growth, Sustainable Development and Inclusive Growth. This dialogue will bring progressive civil society movement political parties and former state presidents to tackle and unravel complex issues that affect the globe. These issues range from global change, famine, poverty, disease, food security, information technology to industrialization, the International Criminal Court, sovereignty and territorial integrity, and the Sustainable Development Goals, transformation of global financial institutions, the impact of the dwindling value of the dollar is the international reserve currency, the escalating war between Russia and Ukraine, which has debilitating effects on the global economy. Other topical issues on the agenda is NATO expansionism, the geopolitical shift towards a new paradigm of collaboration, 
and the diplomatic policy of dialogue and cooperation for mutual growth and shared prosperity. The dialogue repositions our country, South Africa, as an important role player and change catalyst in the global arena. This is a quantum leap to a world of interaction and common agenda of development and technological advancement, food security as opposed to militarization, investment in hardware and artillery and wars. The dialogue will focus on the following key areas, on global peace and security, on inclusive multilateralism, on strengthening BRICS and expanding its membership, and lastly, partnership for mutually accelerated growth, sustainable development, BRICS and Africa. The dialogue will commence on the 18th and end on the 21st of July 2023. The details are as follows. Our President Comrade Cyril Ramaphosa, the President of the NC, will do the opening and welcome address. This will be followed by solidarity messages from leaders of delegations from BRICS political parties, the Chinese Communist Party, the Communist Party of Russia, Indian Congress Party and Workers' Party of Brazil. The dialogue will culminate in the tour of Soweto and the Marupin Cradle of Humankind to expose South Africa to the world of our rich history, culture and traditions and the power of tourism in economic development and fostering friendship and a common bond of humanity. There will also be a series of outreach programs that will be hosted to ensure that various sectors of civil society are not excluded from participating in the BRICS program. These include a seminar that will be hosted in UNISA in the coming week targeting academia and other stakeholders. The second activity will be the Finance and Trade Colloquium hosted by the Progressive Business Forum on the 13th of July 2023, targeting the business community and the financial sector. This dialogue is based on internationalism, pillars and resolutions of our 55th National Conference as the ANC. The ANC will continue to work towards a multipolar world order wherein national sovereignty is not undermined. We'll work with progressive forces in the world by focusing on the implementation and realization of the goals of Agenda 2063 for Africa and the world we want. The African continental free trade area presents an opportunity to improve trade on the continent and promote investment in critical sectors. This entails partnering with the New Development Bank and other multilateral institutions in the world in the area of cooperation and development. This is a gravitation towards a new global model of sustainable development. BRICS is a, is a catalytic and change instrument to contribute to global development. Through these relationships, as President Ramaphosa declared, we cannot be beggars in the land of plenty. <coughs> South African countries of the world are sovereign states whose borders, territorial integrity are non-negotiable. The world cannot be bullied into submission. A new beginning is on the horizon. Transformative winds blowing from all directions to usher a new democratic order. BRICS will grow into one of the biggest trading and political blocks in the world. This dialogue is testimony to a new beginning blessed by the, by the presence of elderly and eminent statesmen and stalwarts of the liberation struggle. The presence of some of the 
eminent persons such as Comrade Joachim Chisan of Mozambique, Olesogan Obasanjo of Nigeria, Sam Nyoma of, Nantip, of Namibia, and Lauren Gabbo of Ivory Coast, among the esteemed guests who will touch the South African soil, promoting, will, will promote the spirit of internationalism and a quest for a better Africa and a better world. The dialogue will be attended by more than 54 political parties from different corners of the world. The dialogue is a major boost for the NC and for our country, South Africa. It repositions and places the NC at the forefront of international struggles. Its attempts to mediate peace between Russia and Ukraine and to mitigate the effects of the war on the global economy, bolstering global South relations and new alliances and partnerships. The NC welcomes all delegates and political leaders from all corners of the world to change history and build a, a world devoid of human persecution, indignity, famine, and wars. That is the spirit of uh, how the NC views the coming BRICS meeting and its outcomes. Thank you very much, Comrade Mashengi. Thank you very much, DSG, <coughs> um, for that comprehensive outline. I will at this point invite members of the media who wish to ask questions, I will start here with the service. So, Simpweda from the SADC, on the issue of NATO, you spoke about the ANC's concern around uh, the expansion of NATO. Uh, today, we know that uh, NATO is preparing for a big summit uh, that starts tomorrow. Uh, what is your message to that important matter, knowing that ANC is a government party in South Africa and the government is under pressure in terms of the foreign policy, the non-aligned solution on the war in Ukraine. The second issue is um, the ICC. In the ANC, what are the discussions around the international criminal court. And finally, our neighbor, Zimbabwe, will be going to elections. Uh, we know that uh, particularly ANC and ZANU-PF as the sister parties. What is your message at this critical time where uh, many people are already raising concerns about the political climate as part of the build up to this important election. Thank you. Thank you very much. May I turn this part? Yes, over to you, my brother. Um, good morning, Kostna Fischer from Power FM News. Um, so the Russian government, um, through the state broadcaster, Russian TV, announced that um, they will be introducing a BRICS currency backed by gold. Um, in your speech, um, Ms. Numbula, you mentioned that this is a new democratic order. So I just wanted to find out, with this new BRICS currency, is it seen as a currency that's meant to combat the dollar, or is it seen as a currency just to enhance the control of the BRICS bloc? Thank you. Thank you very much. Please proceed. Thank you so much. It's on the mind, DSC, what, what is the position of the DSC with regard to the expansion of the uh, British members? Has there been uh, a discussion with regard to that? Thank you. 
I will take those, uh, dear chief. Uh, you may go um, ahead and uh, respond. Okay, thank you very much, and thanks for the questions. The issue of the NATO conference, we note that uh, NATO has opted to convene that conference, a very significant conference. We hope that in those deliberations there will be an appreciation that uh, um, cessation of hostilities across the world is very key. Um, and that dominance of uh, military interventions in any area of conflict does not bring a peaceful solution and it harms primarily women and children. It destroys the future of any country. And in that process, we also believe that they will reflect on uh, what has been the historical resolutions around NATO's expansion and, and be in a position to, to respect um, the institutions of multilateralism, the resolutions at the UN, but also what was then resolved with the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union then uh, and, and the respect of uh, um, sovereignty. We, we do believe that uh, um, there is no other way that uh, the NC can, can, can see this not as another attempt of uh, bolstering dominance um, as compared to helping to find an everlasting solution. We still believe that uh, it is only through a peaceful dialogue uh, and, and negotiations bringing all parties together that there can be a way forward. Uh, and therefore we don't expect that conference to be a conference again of um, trying to, to showcase the, the might and the dominance uh, of, of again aggression um, as compared to, to negotiations. Hence, we welcomed the work that has been done by the leaders, uh, uh, that included our president, Comrade uh, Ramaphosa, and, and the work that we are doing also as the NC, working with other organizations of interacting with the communities and civil society from both Russia and Ukraine. So we, we will await the outcomes of, of that. Uh, and, and, but the, the, the issue of being non-aligned, historically we have remained non-aligned, not only because of um, any relationship that we hold with Russia today, but because of our own historical perspective around the, the, the issues of uh, a unipolar world against uh, a, a, a nations, as well as uh, our own experience of uh, uh, exploitation and, and uh, colonialism, um, as, as well as just uh, the, 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 the arrogance of, uh, of, of those who assume if you say you are non-aligned, it means you have taken sides. You have not taken sides, and hence you can see also through the actions of our own government, all parties have been listened to, and all parties have been given the same uh, observations that we are making and what we believe can be a solution to what is, is happening in the world and therefore we we, we, we are not uh, we are not faced by being accused of, uh, of, of being non-aligned. I think it is the correct decision that the movement has actually taken including our own government we, we've come from a 55th uh, national conference we have a resolution to review um, to remain yes in the ICC but uh, review our our, our participation there. There are processes that are, are, are unfolding um, without undermining 
such bodies because again we must guard against the situation where we do not participate. Our issue is about transforming those institutions and make sure that they are fair, they are consistent and they, they are impartial in terms of how they deal with issues. So our, our, our intention as the African National Congress is that that, that, that uh, applies to to the developed countries must also apply to the underdeveloped countries. The respect for democracy has to be respected and, and most importantly also the, the, the respect for, for local laws, our own laws as, as nations have to be respected and hence because we domesticated um, the statute, the Rome statute as South Africa, we will remain in the ICC. We will remain, but that too does not mean we must remain quiet, even as we see how it gets abused um, for other motives, uh, 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 without making sure that there's consultation uh, and, and that uh, the affected parties are also listened to. Um, we come from that history and hence we remain quite concerned about that. The issues around Zimbabwe. If there's, there's anything that we're looking forward to um, in the immediate, in, uh, in the space of elections, it's free and fair elections in Zimbabwe. And that every Zimbabwean must exercise his or her right to choose the government of his choice. Three, that these elections must actually be free and fair such that anyone who is Zimbabwean must be given the right to express him or herself. And hence we support the observer missions that are in Zimbabwe, and we believe that it is only through them, those bodies, that will get proper reports and feedback as to what exactly is taking place. And everyone who is concerned and affected, let us use those bodies to then express our own observations about the elections in Zimbabwe. A, a, a peaceful um, election in Zimbabwe can also be a good lesson to us as we go to the elections in the next what, seven, a few months from now, a few months from now. So, and, and it would also be a peaceful election in Zimbabwe can also signal prosperity for Zimbabwe. Uh, and, and hence, we, 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 we wish that uh, everything must be in line with uh, the intentions of uh, uh, fostering democracy, the right to choose, and the respect uh, for, for citizens' uh, choices without actually harassment and so on. So that, that's what, how we, we, we see the, the elections and we support the observer missions that are there in Zimbabwe, uh, and, and through them we'll continuously get feedback in, in, in the processes in, in Zimbabwe. The BRICS currency, um, dollarization of uh, trade in the, in the, in the globe has, has demonstrated that it does not work. And amongst other realities is that the formation of BRICS is also about consolidating our capacity in terms of trade amongst ourselves, in terms of growing the global economy, and also making sure that we, 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 we do away with the issues around dominance of one against many. We must, we must diversify um, the, 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 the trading uh, currencies in, a, in, the, in, the, in the globe. Let's diversify and give uh, the, the world options and, and choices. 
And I think what Russia has said is but one of the issues that is going to be a subject in the meeting of BRICS um, uh, 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 in August. We will be putting recommendations out of the meeting of political parties for our, our heads of state then to consider that. There's been different working groups looking at these issues. Those recommendations will also emerge when the declaration of this uh, meeting of political parties ends. And uh, our comrades here from communication will continuously give you an update uh, around this particular deliberation. Um, the, the expansion of BRICS, it, it also again shows that the, the world is not static and the geopolitics themselves are not static. Um, the, it, it, it is a responsibility that uh, the, the founding parties in BRICS have to look at. We welcome that initiative uh, of uh, the deliberations. Consultations are taking place and, and also a criteria is being worked out. Uh, we also note that others are not necessarily interested in being members of BRICS but participating in terms of access to the development bank which again brings another new opportunity in terms of uh, diversifying the financial institutions in the world. And that is, is one of the immediate things that we need to, to, to actually embrace. So that, that, that expansion has to be looked at in two forms, access and, and, and development of alternatives, but also the realization that uh, uh, we can't actually be a one-size-fits-all system in the world. There has to be diversification. Thank you, DSG. I'm going to take a second round of hands. Um, maybe give priority to the late Bloomer, Sandra, and then uh, to the junior, and then I'll come back to Osofi. Tando. Thanks. Thank you very much once more for the, for the questions. Um, in fact, uh, 
it, it would work good for the emerging markets to to collaborate with those that are, are established and developed markets so that then we complement one another because trade um, can only expand if uh, you also create new ventures, new opportunities and, and you, you, you also are able to access the resources from those that uh, have, have amassed the resources over here. So the, the, the deliberations, including from ourselves, the NC, through our Economic uh, Transformation uh, Committee um, and, and the consultations in the country, including the dialogue that's going to happen this coming week, um, the colloquium, our, our view is that there must be, there must be conditions, um, there must be uh, conditions or a criteria that has to be set up um, so that then you also do not have a, a takeover by stealth or dominance that then dilutes the historical mission. Um, and, and we come from that experience about the anti-apartheid movement that we, 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 were, we were supported by those that uh, were affected and those that identified with us beyond those that uh, were affected like us. We also had nations that uh, developed nations standing with us, embracing what we stand for. And, and I think that that is the, the, the approach that the African National Congress is taking in, the, in, this, in this regard. Um, the, 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 the issue around uh, uh, other parties in South Africa, yes, it's the ANC. Um, we are the hosts. Um, we, we've extended an invitation to the Pan-African uh, uh, Congress of Azania, the PAC, uh, as a former liberation movement uh, itself. Um, we, we've also included in, in these 54 parties, the ruling parties, uh, as well as uh, the former liberation movements and the sister parties in the BRICS countries that are not in power. So that's, that's the, the kind of uh, invitation. This is a template that has been agreed upon. It's not even the, the decision of the ANC alone. It's a template. Remember, this is the second time that we host this kind of a gathering. So even when it was hosted in, 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 in China the last time, that's how uh, the invitations actually went out. Um, you, you were asking about political parties, but in South Africa, additional to the political parties that are invited, we've also invited the South African Communist Party and, and Sanko together with COSATU as our allies. Um, those are the ones that, are, that have been invited. Um, we, we have the civil society organizations that work very well with us on issues of peace and dialogue, such as the South African Women in Dialogue that are doing a great deal of work in South Sudan and are working together with us in facilitating dialogue uh, between the uh, civil society organizations in, in Russia and, and in Ukraine. So it, it, it is that that uh, is, is defined as uh, the guests that, or participants that will be in this, uh, in this conference. Yeah. Thank you very much. I want to assume that we are extensively covered, all of us. Um, I see there's a brainwave from her. So see it, her.
Right, the ANC media briefing continues at the back of that uh, NEC meeting this past weekend, the first DSG Nompulam Konyani tabling uh, some of the outcomes from that meeting and answering a couple of questions, just uh, I suppose first and foremost with regards to the NATO summit uh, that is uh, a sitting and uh, just saying that it should uh, not be a sitting of bolstering dominance uh, but one that observes uh, peaceful dialogues, this making reference obviously to the Russia-Ukraine war that's currently taking place, but also uh, saying that they will still await the outcome of that particular engagement by NATO and uh, given that credit to President Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, other African heads of states heading out to Ukraine and Russia to bolster those uh, peaceful talks and engagements, uh, saying that they do believe that dialogue through the experience as uh, you know South African in our history that dialogue is a way they're saying they would not as the ANC be cornered to take sides uh, they would not be intimidated to take sides uh, because the arrogance of that decision is that one uh, particular side may think that uh, you know when you do take sides then it means you're the enemy of the other and saying that you know historically they've shown that non-alliance actually uh, does work for South Africa because of that historical perspective and experience uh, that they say they do not want to be exploited in this regard. But also making mention of Zimbabwe, we know that uh, the elections in Zimbabwe are expected to take place on the 23rd of uh, August this year with Nelson Chamisa uh, prohibited from continuing on with his rally and campaign. But on the other hand, we saw ZANU-PF uh, with their president, Emerson Mnangwagwa, uh, going ahead with their campaign unhindered. So they're saying as the ANC that they would like to see a peaceful, a free and fair election out in Zimbabwe, giving Zimbabweans that freedom to select and elect uh, their next uh, government. However, they're saying that they do still continue to support observer missions uh, in this regard and they will await proper reports to inform them of what really is happening on the ground and that can in turn, uh, you know, uh, offer some support and also some uh, guidelines in terms of South Africa's expected general elections uh, only taking place next year though. Other, you know, conversations around uh, their reviewing, their participating within the ICC uh, came out during the briefing saying the ANC saying they want to ensure that they continue to transform such organizations and uh, they ensure that they do remain impartial, uh, but also saying they, they will remain in the ICC, but they will not remain quiet. Where their voice is required, uh, they will be sure to exercise that as members within the ICC. Of course, the Q&A is still continuing on with the ANC first DSG answering uh, some of those uh, questions to our media colleagues. Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from... Uh, the Deputy uh, Secretary General, uh, Numbula Mokayani of uh, the African National Congress of South Africa, uh, giving that briefing uh, as a result of the National Executive Committee of the ANC and its meeting uh, last weekend. Also, there was another briefing on the Economic Transformation Subcommittee uh, of uh, the African National Congress National Executive Committee. Uh, they also uh, issued a briefing as well. Uh, let's listen in. 
The ANC's National Executive Committee's Economic Transformation Subcommittee Media Briefing at the Birchwood Hotel is currently underway. Let's take you there now live. This morning, um, just to appraise members of the public around the work that we've been doing, we've got several issues that we're dealing with regularly, um, and we present to the National Executive Committee as part of our work in the subcommittee. We are dealing this weekend, as Comrade Mashing has said, has said um, we're dealing with various topics that we are presenting before the, sub, uh, the NEC as the subcommittee. I'll just give you highlights, but we'll focus on two today. Um, we're dealing with, firstly, the issue around electricity, energy security. As you would have known in the last briefing of the NEC, we committed that every month or every time the NEC meets, we will provide an update to the NEC um, on the energy security because this is one of the areas that conference said we must act and we must act immediately. The second area of briefing will be focused on the issues around employment equity labor laws um, and that you would understand that it has been an issue in the public domain. This precisely because we have feedback from our constituencies that tends to have confusion about what we intend to do, um, asking us if we are abandoning the non-racial character of the ANC. But secondly, those who are within our context in working with us and are wanting to understand what is it that the ANC government has signed between ourselves and also the solidarity uh, organization where you'd understand in terms of our motive forces, people would not define solidarity as part of our motive forces. So it is important for us to be able to address that and that's why we have the two comrades who are both members of the subcommittee of the NEC, both in terms of their deployment and work and you'd understand that the subcommittee has extended its work beyond just members of the NEC but other colleagues who are comrades who are in government who are deployed within the portfolios that are within the economic space, but also other extended people. So we'll also brief the NEC on issues around cost of living and inflation. We'll also brief the NEC around issues of transformation, triple BE evaluation, which we have done. We had a mini workshop as the subcommittee. So those will come later and the spokesperson will guide in how we deal with it. But that's broadly the work that we are doing. More interested in what we have received as um, any a, a, a directive from conference, from our structures on what this NEC must be able to focus on. So we continue with that work. So I'm going to agree, um, ask Comrade Sputa to first um, brief you on the update around energy security because you'd understand that this is what would drive economic development and the recovery of our economy. And then immediately congratulations will come in on the issues around implement um, equity laws and then we'll take questions um, from that point. Comrade Speaker, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Mamoloko. And uh, just to, to say, re-emphasize the point that uh, Comrade Mamoloko was making, and that is uh, uh, energy, electricity is a permanent feature of, uh, of uh, the agenda items of, uh, of the NEC. Um, the ANC had identified six priority areas when he, the President uh, unveiled the statement of the National Executive Committee on the occasion of uh, our anniversary, the January 8th uh, statement. Uh, and one of those is uh, uh, ending load shedding. Um, so the last time when we met as the NEC, 
we, we had presented a picture of uh, the, the energy landscape, electricity landscape, and at the time we were uh, able to share with the NEC what we refer to as the winter outlook. Uh, and I want to just uh, provide you with the, the update, and this is the same update that is given to, to the NEC. The first one was that in relation to the winter outlook, we had uh, generated three scenarios. The first was the best case scenario. The best case in this instance means that uh, we are able to rein in uh, load shedding, and in fact we keep it at uh, lower levels of uh, intensity. Um, and then there's a middle case scenario, and then there's a worst case scenario. So there were two um, primary assumptions that uh, underpins uh, the generation of the scenarios. The first one was that on the worst case scenario, was that uh, the levels of uh, the reliability and the efficiency of the units will not improve. So the last time when we were here, the energy availability factor was uh, hovering at about 48.5%. Uh, and that the combination of a number of things, the first one was that the, the number of, uh, of trips and the regularity of those trips will take out about uh, 18,000 plus uh, megawatts of uh, generating capacity. So that was uh, uh, the first uh, indice in relation to, or variable in relation to the worst case scenario. The second um, indice in relation to the worst case scenario was that the demand was going to peak at about uh, 34,000 megawatts. So essentially the gap between uh, uh, generation and demand will be such that uh, we are likely going to experience uh, the intensity of load shedding above what was the previously recorded historic high of uh, stage six of load shedding. And that's why when I was here, I did indicate the last time that uh, uh, the probability of going to stage eight was real. If uh, we are not able to temper with uh, the improvement in relation to the generation capacity and also are unable to uh, lower down the demand. Uh, so that's a scenario we painted and I also shared with the NEC and uh, yourselves and the country the measures that we are taking to address uh, in the short, immediate term rather, um, the, uh, the realization of, uh, of that worst case scenario, how we undermine uh, the occurrence of that scenario. So the first one was uh, to continue to work with ESCOM and improve the energy availability factor. And on that, I'm happy to, to say to you that uh, we have made uh, tremendous strides. And like I said, we we're sitting at about 48% uh, the last time when I was here of the energy availability factor. And now we're stabilizing at about 60% uh, uh, of the energy availability factor. And what have we done to attain those who had uh, isolated uh, uh, the most notorious power stations. Notoriety in this instance means those power stations that have got um, an installed uh, capacity that is uh, significantly higher. Uh, so I'm talking about those power stations that they have got packs of uh, packs. I'm, I'm referring to unit of generation of uh, 600 megawatts and, and plus. Uh, uh, and then secondly, the, the, those power stations are the ones that they uh, are giving us uh, low levels of, uh, of EAF. So we identified those uh, power stations and then also identified uh, the problems about the individual units. Uh, whether it's a boiler tube leak, you, you can mention the kind of uh, uh, technical failures that can result in the units being taken out. 
and then we work with ESCOM, including mobilizing private sector expertise uh, to be embedded in those uh, power stations. Uh, and of course, the, the major uh, occurrence that has happened between the last briefing to the NEC and now is that we have appointed the new head of generation, Mr. Begin Numa, who's got the um, impeccable credentials, um, comes uh, highly recommended, someone who has worked uh, through the ranks of ESCOM previously before his uh, current stint as the head of generation. He was the head of Rotec, which is the engineering arm of, uh, of uh, ESCOM. And then we have succeeded also working with uh, that leadership to also get the uh, uh, if you like, uh, people with uh, the best experience inside ESCOM to be uh, in the leadership of uh, some of these uh, stations that they are notorious for underperformance. And as I speak to you now, like I said, we have lifted the energy availability factor by 12 uh, percentage points. Just to put that into context, um, one percentage point really amounts to about 477 uh, a megawatts of additional generating uh, capacity um, and that's why now we, we are attaining uh, the average levels that are just below shy of, uh, of uh, 30,000 megawatts the availability factor and we've been able to maintain that over a period of time and that's why uh, the country has been observing a, a situation where about two-thirds of, uh, of the day we are not experiencing load shedding or in instances where we do we are able to keep that to stage one load shedding and then we go to stage three. So that has been the, the permutation that we have been keeping uh, for the past three weeks or so. That uh, uh, communicates one big message is that we are succeeding in uh, maintaining those uh, uh, levels of efficiency which uh, is something that uh, uh, has, been, uh, has been failing us. And then the second part was also on the, how we bend the diesel, the open cycle uh, gas turbines. Uh, uh, although uh, we have uh, been uh, in the midst and the throes of winter, uh, we have not been uh, burning it at the rate that we thought we would be burning it. So we have been able to save, uh, uh, if you like, uh, the ESCOM fiscal some money and then we'll engage them um, when, as and when they are required. We know in the next two weeks we'll be entering uh, uh, one of the coldest periods during the winter and in fact uh, the projections are that Monday uh, is going to be the coldest day recorded this so far in this winter period. So we'll see how we perform. And I, I was making the point at the NEC that the best measure is not where we are in relation to the stages of load shedding. The best measure is on the performance of those units. As long as we are able to maintain them at 60% and 60 plus, we'll be able to provide relief. And then in conclusion, we are also flagging the fact that the of course, we, we are going to see this recovery, the improvement, and then there are those units at Kusile that will come on stream. Uh, unit 5, we, 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 we project to fire it by October. Unit 1, 2, 3, which was affected by the flue gas desulfurization, and we have gotten the exemptions from DFFE. Uh, those will be fired uh, by uh, no, uh, the first one uh, late November, the second one early December, and then the third one on the 24th of December. And if you put those together, we're talking uh, upwards of uh, 3,000 megawatts, so essentially you're talking uh, about six percentage points. If you use that uh, uh, computation, I told you about one percentage point is uh, 477 megawatts. And like I said, in conclusion, we are cautioning about the future. The future is that if you don't address the transmission side of generation, we are likely going to end up in even a much worse uh, case scenario than is the case now. 
So that's the first part. The second part is about um, uh, the energy resources. Uh, so uh, we know there are issues around uh, the gas supply um, that we are drawing from Mozambique. I think that contract, the uh, Sasol that it has, is likely to go in, is projected to run out uh, in the near future, I think the next two to three years, and therefore the reliability of a uh, of, uh, gas supply is at risk. So it's important that we plan now about the, about the future so that we don't compromise the sovereignty, energy sovereignty of the country. But overall, I think we, we're making the, we are surpassing our expectation in, re, in relation to the performance of the units and we are more than confident that uh, uh, we should be able to survive the winter, we will not experience the worst case scenario as we had projected and will continue to see the improvements and I'm very confident that load shedding will be behind us uh, very soon and then we now begin to work on uh, uh, creating uh, an additional buffer um, uh, reserve margins to allow the economy to grow at a desired level. Thank you very much. Let's move to congratulations. Thank you. Thanks to Comrade Mashen, Comrade Mamluku, and Comrade Ramukhupa. The one of the central mandates of the African National Congress is to transform the economy. And the Employment Equity Act is one of the measures. It's one of the measures which are meant to transform the economy. And it is against that background that the President signed the amendments to the Employment Equity Act at the beginning of this year. But what prompted that, remember that this act came in 1998, but an attempt to implement what we call the constitutional requirement to bring about equity and equal opportunity in the workplace has been very, very slow. Our reports from the Employment Equity Commission are indicating that we're moving at a very slow pace, especially at the level of management. And this has been particularly at the expense or at the cost of the Africans, the colors, the women and the people with disability. It's for that reason that we have these amendments. And all the amendments are doing, instead of saying these targets must be voluntary by the employers themselves, it makes them mandatory now. But it's not unilateral action from the minister. So the minister is empowered to set the sectoral targets in consultation with the sectors. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So 
That's where we are coming from. That background is very important. And then we've been forced to draft the regulations. Which are sort of the guidelines on how people have to implement that. Those regulations have been put for public comment. We've received responses which were consolidating. And once we've been able to consolidate that and see if there's a need to adjust the guidelines as per the public comments, we will do so. That is before there's a proclamation by the President. But there's also another interesting uh, background which you must know. Is solidarity. The Solidarity Union has always been the biggest critic of employment equity and even affirmative action. This is evidenced by the various court challenges which we have gone through. Some have won, some solidarity has won because they were not exactly the same. So there is a body of case law in relation to this particular question. Solidarity also filed a complaint, a complaint against the Republic of South Africa government under the ILO Article 24, alleging that the implementation of employment equity and affirmative action in South Africa is non-compliant with the ILO Convention Number 111 on discrimination and occupations and employment. What the ILO did in November last year, this was filed some time back, but in November last year, the IO requested the parties, that is the Government and Solidarity Union of South Africa, to consider a national mediation process aimed at resolving the dispute. And this is the first time this is happening, that when there is such a complaint, instead of being referred for the dispute committee to deal with it. The dispute committee said, we've come up with a new procedure to allow the parties in dispute to see if they cannot, be res they cannot resolve those issues through the mediation. Because we have a very strong mechanism in South Africa in the form of the CCMA. This matter, the CCMA was requested to mediate on this matter and CCMA mediated, and we had the results out of the mediation. That's how we signed an agreement with solidarity. But I must emphasize, there is nothing in the agreement which is already, or which is not already included in the Constitution in the employment uh, legislation and the regulation. Although this has been willfully ignored by Solidarity and some of the opposition parties, in particular the DA and the FF Plus. 
the only thing considered by solidarity in terms of the need of the affirmative action is it is affirmative action is of a temporal nature trying to explain that to them so no one then should be surprised but I must, I must say what does this argument say what does it mean this argument means that once we have signed that it provides that policy uncertainty and it also says we're not talking about a one size fits all which will be imposed on the companies there are a number of conditions they have to meet there are even conditions where they can justify non-compliance that's in the act but here is another controversial issue which I think uh, the chair of the ETC, Comrade Kupai, has raised. There have been an issue about, are we trying to balkanize this country? The issue of the demographics. If you look at States SA, whenever it releases the employment figures, they will talk about economically active population both nationally and provincially because we are sitting with a situation in South Africa where the patterns of settlement were racialized. You have a particular concentration of the colored people in the Western Cape and even Northern Cape. You can talk about that around the Durban region of the Indian people. So when companies are dealing with the employment targets, they have to take that into consideration. They can use the national demographics or the provincial de demographics. That's there in the law, not in the regulations. We're just expressing how they have to be implemented. And I want to emphasize no one from any ethnic groups would lose their job. This would be illegal and unconstitutional. It would be against the law. Lastly, at an international level it will be for the first time I want to emphasize it will be the first time since the ILO introduced this national mediation approach that an ILO member state has successfully mediated a dispute and reached a settlement without having to appear before the International Labour Conference Committee on Labour Standards and as such it's setting us as an exemplar on how to use remediation internationally and, and at a national level clearly the recently launched or lodged the labor court case by the solidarity and the freedom front which is supporting that it falls away after the argument Solidarity has said that they would love it to be made a court order. That's it. And unfortunately, Freedom Front has no case to support now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a African National Congress National Executive Committee briefing on economic transformation inside of the uh, Republic of South Africa. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal.
special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, July 16th, uh, 2023. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, to listen to it again and share it with other potential listeners, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with uh, a broadcast uh, from Oscar Brown Jr. Uh, featuring Phineas Newborn Jr. Uh, this was done in 1962. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Brown Jr. on the jazz scene, USA. Among the hundreds of fine musicians jazz has produced, some are noted for the heartwarming beauty of their music, others for the brilliance of their instrumental technique. It isn't very often that you find true inspiration combined with total virtuosity. One exception to that rule is the amazing young man in the spotlight today. You don't have to take my word for it, of course. The only requirements are Phineas Newborn's hands and your attentive ears as he plays his own theme for Basie.
That was theme for Basie, named for a musician who heard Phineas Newborn 10 years ago in Memphis. And Basie swears he hasn't recovered yet. A reviewer once said that Phineas has a command of the instrument to make other pianists weep and the ability to translate into immediate action any thought that comes into his head. Even among classical pianists who perform set compositions, the complete virtuoso is a rarity. But when you get into jazz and a great deal of improvisation is called for, the demands on the player are almost forbidding. Phineas has a background of years of intensive study as a concert pianist. You might assume this from the way he incorporates a Ravel sonatine as an introduction into his next performance. From his recent album, A World of Piano, Phineas plays the durable Billy Strayhorn melody, Lush Life.
One night, years ago, when the late Art Tatum and the first great Bach pianist, Bud Powell, were both working at Birdland in New York, Art acted a little sarcastic toward Bud. He called him a one-handed piano player who relied entirely on his right hand. Well, the next night, Bud walked in, sat on at the piano, and played the whole set with nothing but his left hand. Tatum apologized, and that night they buried the hatchet and went out together and had a ball. I'm telling you this little anecdote because Spinius shows a Bud Powell influence as well as a Tatum-like facility, and because the next newborn opus is blues for the left hand only.